The College Game Day podcast is presented by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. Ralphie runs college football, at least for week one, and there is a new number one team in the land, or at least there had better be, and are we overreacting to all of these clock rules? This is the College Game Day podcast for Labor Day, Monday, September 4th. Still a game to go as we record this. Clemson and Duke will play tonight. Reese Davis and Pete Thamel with you. Uh, Pete, what a week one and everything overshadowed by the virtuoso performance from Travis Hunter and the rest of the Buffaloes, for that matter, and Shadur Sanders, who set a school record through for more than 500 yards, and a team that was woeful by far the worst team in Power 5 and one of the worst teams in all of college football last year, retooled its roster and went in and beat TCU, runner-up for the national championship last year in a game that sent shockwaves and sent yeah, a message. Yeah, I mean, look, Reese, I'll be the uh, first really to admit I'm really, really surprised uh, that, that Colorado went in and won that game. And, I mean, what a flag plant for a new era, right? Dion brings in 80-plus new guys. Um, there was huge depth questions on their offensive and defensive line. Everybody knew they had some stars, right? And there were some sexy players, Travis Hunter, Shador Sanders. They had gotten some blue chips out of the portal. But, um, but my surprise came that they were not exposed on either line and that they just simply never wore down playing the style of offense they play. Um Hat tip to Dion. Obviously, the first one he he clearly instilled the belief in that team in that program that carried them through. You know that'll be one of the best games of the year, right? I think we can say pretty comfortably that'll be one of the five most entertaining games of the year. Um, hat tip to Dion for hiring an excellent staff that included Sean Lewis, who was the head coach at Kent State, a very successful one. Um, who brought in a system that TCU had no answers for. And Shador Sanders, I think, showed a lot of development and evolution uh, in the past six, eight months to come in and, and really be able to just simply pick that TCU defense apart. Um, the identity of Colorado has been established. It's, it's one of high, high-end skill guys, a relentless tempo and wide-open offense that they're going to dare you to stop. And Nebraska gets to stop it at altitude this week, Reese. It'll, it'll be styles make fights, and I'm not sure based on what I saw in the Nebraska-Minnesota game, which is probably going to be one of the candidates for dumb ways to lose at the end of this podcast. I'm not sure I saw enough that they can keep up, even if they can try to keep the fight interior, I mean, on the interior. They'll be the stronger, more physical team in terms of size and strength up front on both lines of scrimmage. That might not carry the day or might not help them because they're going to have to produce some on offense with all of the weapons that Colorado has. If Nebraska perhaps were a little better, a little farther along on offense, I might be inclined to really say this is going to be a major problem for Colorado. And maybe it will. Maybe it will. But we didn't see enough from Nebraska to suggest that. The other thing that I think you brought up the fact that Dion hired yeah. a great staff. He also has veterans on the defensive side of the ball. And I was I was talking to one of their assistants leading up and leading up to that game and asking him what we were going to see. And he said, You are going to see relentless effort. You're going to see guys running to the ball, or somebody else will be in to run to the ball. 
And while they weren't always great, I mean, they gave up a bunch of points. They made huge plays. They had two interceptions in the red zone. The one by Travis Hunter was one of the best plays I've seen, and I I don't remember when. This guy is fabulous. You start thinking about back to Chris Gamble at Ohio State, who was a two-way player, or Charles Woodson, who did some of it, and there have been other guys over the years. But he was relied upon. He wasn't like, hey, let's get – even when, when Deion Sanders, you know, would occasionally play offense. And I know he, he did due to injury quite a bit and a couple times in the NFL. But it's pretty apparent that they're going to take this guy, and he is a legit full-time – Is that sustainable, Reese? Like, I- and the fact that he never wore down and continued to make big plays, I, I don't know. I don't want to be a buzzkill about it, but like, there's a reason why this is like a once a generation thing. That's really hard to do. Right. Um, Desmond Howard this morning brought up a, brought up a great point on our game day call about what his actual total mileage would have been if they have the sports track GPS stuff. I mean, he had to run 16, 17 miles. I I have no idea, but like, that's, and it's not running your sprinting on both sides of the ball. Like he has to be in elite, 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 elite shape. Yeah, I'd have to go back and look at the tape, but you know how um you know how the old Art Bryles offense, if you weren't in the play, you basically, you know, opposite side, you took the play off. You certainly you can't do that at corner, but uh, when he was at wide receiver, I'd have to go back and look. I didn't necessarily notice that, you know, watch, watching the game, but it was a remarkable feat, and I do think sports science is going to come into play with this because one of the things that even even the most veteran coaches like you know like Nick Saban and others who practice hard have come to accept if you've got a guy who's exerted a certain amount of energy whether it be in the game or in early practices more coaches have become accepting to saying hey look coach we've we've had Travis run x number of miles this is what our data shows us so full speed all out let's hold him under whatever reps in practice this week in order to have him fresh for the game on Saturday. I think that would that's something I want to find out this week, how Colorado handled the recovery for for Travis Hunter particularly. And and I think that will go a long way toward telling us whether it's sustainable. And also does it they still have to make sure because while he's brilliant, he's a young player and he probably needs some reps. So how do you you know how do you strike that balance of making sure he gets the reps he needs on both sides of the ball physical reps he'll have tons of mental reps and still make yeah, sure yeah I mean he you're almost playing a different really sport this for week each of your games. defense on Colorado you're playing a team that ran the belly option primarily against uh, you know against Minnesota on Thursday night and now you're playing so you know. You just came off playing TCU, which is obviously like an air raid, wide open, uh, wide open system. So um, I don't know if the Cornhuskers have the talent at receiver that uh, that TCU has. They certainly don't have the toys. So uh, yeah, it's it's just very interesting. That's what makes college football great, right? Like it, this this game, I I would not think there's going to be 70 points scored total in this game. I think Matt Rule is going to take the air out of the ball. I think he's going to limit possessions. I think he's going to lean into the new clock rules, which we'll debate vigorously later. And I just think you said style makes fights. That's an elite point. I just really feel like this game is going to test what I was most curious about Colorado. And we'll see how they respond to it. 
Two things can be true, as I like to point out. And it is absolutely true that Colorado outplayed, outcoached, outschemed, everything you can imagine. I mean, watching that game, as you often point out, we don't root. Oh. But I found myself, not caring who won, enjoying the game. But there reached a point when TCU took the lead that I said, you know, the way these two teams have played, it would actually be a shame if Colorado lost the game. They played better. You know, they, they, they played better. I think while it's a great moment for Colorado and Deion, Deion Sanders, Travis Hunter and college football, Shadur Sanders, great moment for all of those guys. It is also a near catastrophic moment in terms of, in terms of losing momentum and goodwill that you generated in year one at TCU. That, I mean, that is gone. Then you had the little thing that, you know, seems to hit at certain places a lot in the state of Texas. I guess the players left without staying for the alma mater. Sonny apologized. Sonny Dykes apologized on Twitter, said it wouldn't happen again, that it hadn't been communicated, that they stay win or lose. Um, you know, there is a lot that went wrong and a lot of things that uh, undermined all of the momentum that they had based on that great run to the national championship game last year. I'm not saying they're going to stink forever, that they'll never win again or anything like that, but you like to be able to take success and build on it. And that's the type of loss that undermines that to a near catastrophic level in terms of momentum. And again, I want to... I don't want this, you know, aggregated, as you say, because Reese Davis says TCU will never win again, that it's all over after the Colorado loss. Not saying that. I'm saying they they really undid a ton I, of I, I their do think that's fair. goodwill and, I just and think momentum. This game epitomizes that fair? the thin line we live in. I, you know, for about the last seven years, I've said college basketball is a year-to-year business. One year has nothing to do with the next year. And I really think Saturday was a was mm-hmm. a, a lightning bolt to tell us all college football is now a year to year business more than ever. You could argue this started before and I wouldn't I wouldn't scream against it. But I think Saturday, when you see what Texas State did with GJ Kinney and 50 plus new players, you see what Colorado did. And then, you know, it was always a thin line with TCU. I, I called up their schedule from last year. One score win at SMU. One score win at Kansas, double OT win against Oklahoma State. They had that uh, that freak Baylor walk off field goal. One score win at Texas. You know, even the games in in league play. Ten point win against Tech. Ten point win against West Virginia. Um, obviously, they had that wild game against uh, against Michigan and the overtime loss to K State in the Big Ten title game. Like statistically, you probably shouldn't win that many close games. It's a little bit like turnover luck, right? right? Yeah. And then what's the difference with, with Max Duggan? Well, Max Duggan doesn't throw two red zone interceptions, mm-hmm. even if Travis Hunter stood on his head for one of them. Like, like those are like – it's just a thin line in this sport, and that's what makes it great. Yeah. It just makes it great that these shooting stars can come out of nowhere and completely change the paradigm. I mean, this is my 20th year covering National College Football – like I've spent 20 times the amount of time thinking and talking about Colorado in the last 48 hours than I did the first 19 years and 354 days. I mean, it's, it's not even close, yeah. right? Like I mean, just, it's not even close. So, and that's what makes this sport great is like the rules are wacky and the business is flawed and the leadership stinks, but you know what? At the end of the day, 
the games are mind bending and it's almost like more Yahtzee right now, where it's just like the, the variance when you shake up the dice and roll it out is, uh, is there. So I, I think it's, uh, I, I think it's awesome that the line is that thin and that's what makes the sport great. The job that Deion Sanders wanted and didn't get was Florida State, his alma mater. And while the way Deion Sanders and G.J. Kenney at Texas State who went into Baylor and whooped them, they didn't just you know pull an upset, they whooped them. Um, 42. They did. But a guy who's playing the transfer portal game brilliantly is Mike Norvell at Florida State. Uh, he got the job. There was some... Uh, there was heat coming around that maybe he wasn't the right guy that they should have hired Deion Sanders. I'm sure Deion would have done a great job at Florida State, too, and may and may get that job someday. Coaching things change. But as we sit here today on Labor Day, I'm voting Florida State number one. Um, at Michigan as a preseason number one, I still might favor Michigan over Florida State, but early season rankings should be fluid and reflective of what you see and not try trying to validate your predictions. What I saw from Florida State last night, especially in the second half, was an elite team that can compete on the line of scrimmage with anybody they play. Dangerous, dangerous receiver play. And as a couple of people aptly pointed out, no disrespect intended to Johnny Wilson, who's an outstanding player, but Keon Coleman was the guy that a lot of people said, that guy's going to make a difference, and he made a huge one. And I really thought that Jordan Travis did a good job. I thought he might uh, might be a little ra- – he was a little rattled in the first half, and many times it's difficult to kind of get yourself back together and play at an ultra-elite level, and he did. Um, they, I mean, they just – they stomped LSU in the second half, and there was no mistake about it. That is what a national championship contender – is supposed to look like. It's only one week. I totally get that. But you want to come out of the gate and show people that you want to answer that question I've asked in the offseason? If not now, when? And they say, okay, now? That's the way to answer that question. And they looked they looked terrific against a really good team. LSU played poorly in the second half, but most of that was because they were getting they were getting uh, spanked pretty good by the Seminoles. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna tie together topic one and topic two before we go to last night's game. Uh, signing day, December fifteenth, twenty twenty one. Do you remember who Travis Hunter flipped from to go to Jackson State? Of course, yeah, he was going to Florida State. Yeah, yeah, he's going to Florida State, and it was almost like the because Florida State was struggling then. The 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 some of the nerves is oh Dion's like stealing from Florida State so he can go get that job. Now I never really truly believed Mike Norvell's job was in danger. They had just extended him. He was financially protected to what would have to been a historic level for firing. But I bring that up mostly because this is a podcast where we like to just sort of you know you can go down rabbit holes. Imagine Florida State with Travis Hunter right now, where <laughs> yeah. he was committed to and supposed to yeah. go. Yeah, I mean. Is he the? Would he be the best player on their roster or not? Who knows? But he'd be one of the three best because he might be one of the three best players in the country, and he was one of the top three recruits in the country. That, so anyway, that like you want to talk about like uh, a, a shift 
that's just reverberates through the sport in a lot of ways and epitomizes the the fragility of success and the thin line between success and failure. I just thought that was a that was a funny thing to harken back to as as he stole the show Saturday and then Florida State obviously stole the show Sunday uh, Sunday night. But all credit to to Mike Norvell because the first twenty minutes of that game, LSU was a better team. I mean, LSU pushed them up and down the field. Would they go to the red zone like five their first five six possessions something like that? I mean, but Florida but State did what they finish. needed to do. But couldn't finish. In, Correct. They bowed up on the whipping them. Yeah, on the line of scrimmage once yes. they got down there. Oh yeah. yeah. Nope. Yeah. Correct. No, there's no question. And we've talked about this a little bit just because we've had our homages to the returning starts on the Florida State offensive <laughs> line. If you are going to go toe to toe with the SEC, you need quality up front and you need quality depth up front. And I think the single biggest factor in Florida State whooping. LSU in the second half of that game was they had both quality and quality depth on the offensive and defensive line. And that is eventually where the game was won. Now, Keon Coleman was great. Jordan Travis turned, you know, obviously turned the corner after, uh, after a couple boneheaded decisions there in the second quarter. Um, but I really feel like the game was won there. And that's why Florida State may be a favorite at Clemson. Now we'll see Clemson Monday night. We don't know anything about them yet. And it's certainly... I just said it earlier, one year has nothing to do with the next, but man, that power up front is real and is special and it's going to be a cool thing. And if Florida State does sort of continue on and become a playoff contender, which they are now, but become a playoff team from being a contender, I think the conversation starts there. It does bear pointing out that LSU was was without Mason Smith, not an excuse for a loss, but that certainly could not have hurt them on the defensive front. And the other thing, because, uh, you know, we've been picked on, especially me, by our college game day producer, Jim Gallero, because as we went through our season previews, I would often reference the number of starts returning on the offensive line for not just Florida State, but a lot of teams. My theory in doing that, and I think I might have pointed this out earlier, is if you don't have a lot of starts returning, it doesn't mean you're going to stink. I just really believe in continuity, communication, all that thing. It takes a while for an offensive line. So sometimes it can be indicative. It's nice to, it's better to have really good offensive linemen than it is to have a bunch of returning starts of mediocre offensive linemen. But I thought it was important for Florida State in the first half. I was watching. I was like, yes, those 200 starts aren't aren't doing much for them at times in the running game. But that's the thing about playing elite teams and elite defensive fronts. You're probably not going to start from the first quarter just knocking guys from LSU or Ohio State or Georgia or Alabama, just knocking them off the ball and just line up, you know, and uh, 12 personnel and run over everybody all, all night. That's not likely to happen. But if you have those qualities that you just talked about on the offensive front, then you can start to wear people down over the course of the night. That's what started to happen in the second half, especially after they made a couple of plays in the passing game. Now you've chased Jordan Travis around a little bit. Maybe you're not quite as fresh. And now it starts to come into play. And it certainly did for the Seminoles. Uh, last night. I was I was really impressed and it absolutely makes that game at Clemson a luxury and not a necessity for their playoff hopes. They they would love to win it. They certainly can. Clemson can certainly win it too, but they're not in a position where they think, well, our season's going to be over 
uh, before September comes to a close if we don't win at Clemson. That's not the not the case anymore, and that might be freeing from a mental standpoint to allow them to go in and, and play their best. Yeah, no, really, uh, really good point. And I, I think, too, it's worth sort of uh, throwing some roses at the ACC here, right? Mm-hmm. Like North Carolina pulled away from S, uh, from South Carolina in the second half of that game and was was clearly the better team. Your man crush. I know you don't root for anybody, but there had to be some there had to be some smiles uh, on your uh, on your face. Dude, man. (laughs) Oh, man. He's it's just it's the delivery. It's smooth jazz, man. The way it leaves his hand. It's just like it's the way it should look like. It's like the logo of like how a how a the archetype of a quarterback should uh, should go. And then, like, he and Caleb are just very different, right? Caleb's mm-hmm. arm angles and movement and, like, you know, run around and do a dizzy bat race and then find a guy open in the end zone where uh, where Drake May is just – he is just smooth jazz. It's almost like, like Eli Manning-y smooth. Like, it's just, like, really, really what it's supposed to look like. So – um, you know, again, we, we don't root for teams, but it is fun to have some new faces, right? Carolina, mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're going to contend for the playoff, but they should at least like assert themselves now as an ACC contender, which they were last year until the wheels completely fell off. Um, mm-hmm. The thing I was most impressed by by Carolina was the consistency of their pass rush, mm-hmm. that their front seven was a unit that the collectively the the talent never lived up to the stars. Mac Brown has recruited really well there. They did not play with an edge. They were not gnarly. That was place I've said it on this podcast, not perceived to be a tough program. Well, they look tough on Saturday night. Credit to them for pushing on and Gene Chizik for getting that group ready to play because they got after Spencer Rattler. I and you know what? I want to give some credit to Spencer too. I thought he was terrific. He he did everything he possibly yeah, he could. He was under duress the entire night. I thought he really acquitted himself well, and I think he's got a chance to have a really good season. They're going to need to protect him better in order for him to have a chance to pull off, uh, you know, some maybe some unexpected wins in the midst of a really difficult schedule for them. But i I thought he played. I thought he played really well. Gave them a chance. Tried to keep them in the game. And I think he's got. A, I think he's got a really good future as a pro too. I don't know that I'm totally sold that he's going to be what people might have thought when he first arrived at Oklahoma, but put him in the right place, get him with the right coaches, get, you know, and he certainly got the talent. He can, I mean, he can throw the football. There's no question about that. So I was impressed with him too, but you know, you brought up a point and it's something I'm going to talk about a little bit more, probably on Wednesday's podcast as we look ahead a little bit more. ACC deserves credit. Pac-12 and their swan song, they deserve credit. And this upcoming week is a gargantuan one for perception of the SEC. They, yes. It's not just Alabama-Texas, but with South Carolina losing to North Carolina, at least in the preseason, perceived to be comparable programs in their respective conferences, you know, sort of on par, with Florida State smashing LSU, both perceived to be at the top or near the top, of their respective conferences. Um, Tennessee, Virginia, I mean, the court will stipulate there. That's that's a mismatch, you know, in terms of perception. But some of these non-conference games for the SEC this week, obviously Texas and Alabama, but also Arizona, Mississippi State, Auburn and California, Ole Miss and Tulane. And I think there's one other one that I'm that I'm forgetting right now at the top of my head, but 
at any rate, you let the did you say Arizona, Mississippi. I did. State? I said Arizona, Mississippi State. Okay, but there there's one other one. It doesn't matter if the SEC A and M Miami. That's it. That's the one I left. I missed A yeah. and M and okay. Miami. If you let the SEC drop a couple of those, particularly the high mm-hmm. profile ones, doesn't mean the SEC stinks. Doesn't mean they're you know they don't have more draft choices, but it does mean that this perception and this evaluation of schedules as we start to match them up, they don't have this giant edge because they, they will have lost a number of these, of these games. And that's part of it, man. And, you know, is I it think a it, little more fun that the aura of SEC dominance gets poked a little? Does that make it a little more fun? Sure. Absolutely. Like, because I, I put, I, I hate when people do this. I can't believe I'm phrasing it this way, but I tweeted last night, it's a big weekend for the SEC and for the people who love to hate the SEC or love to root against them. Yes. All of those games, you let them you let them wind up 500, or I guess you get two and three, three and two, then people will poke holes. You let them go one and four, you know, or or somehow lose, lose them all, which is unlikely. But if they did, I mean, there would be a celebration outside of, of that group, and there would probably be a few SEC apologists running to say, uh, well, Texas is coming to the SEC next year, you know, trying to claim that victory sort of the way Ohio State uh, people claim Joe Burrow or something. So it's a, it's a really big weekend, I think, for, for the SEC, for those against it, and really for how we should uh, evaluate schedules because that's what conference strength is about. The bragging right stuff is fun on social media, but what it's about to me is when you're determining who the best teams are, evaluating the schedule. And this idea that playing an SEC schedule is just inherently tougher most of the time over the last you know 15 years or so has been true. But maybe that's not the case this year. So that will go a long way toward determining that. I think what happens this week in these non-conference games. Yeah, I really think so. And I think that, and we'll get into this probably more in our picks pod on Friday, but there is just a little hint, more so maybe than any time in the last decade of vulnerability at Bama. And there's a thought that Texas has the talent to go in there and win. Um, Now, again, there's so many variables that go into a game like that. Night game, atmosphere, pressure. Um, certainly one program has responded much better to pressure than another in the last decade. I think that goes without saying. But I, I think there's a ton of opportunity there for Texas. And if Bama loses that game, it really, I think, sets the SEC dominance narrative back for this season some. Um, also think, Reese, like what a cool – in this sort of, it's the end of the world as we know it, like the old REM song. I think that's been like the soundtrack of this season. It would kind of be cool to have like the world be a little bit flatter um, in the conferences to be even in jockeying and not just chasing like they really have been the SEC. Uh, much like Florida State and LSU last night, a loss for Alabama is not eliminating. It's elevating for Texas and puts them squarely in the mix. And I do think to your Alabama vulnerability point, Alabama has lost its last three games that have a similar marquee value. Now, the national championship game against Georgia, that's obviously a marquee value game all its own. 
But the other two gargantuan feel going into the game matchups, Tennessee game last year, the LSU game last year, something on the line, you know, and whether it be in terms of perception, um, national standing when they played Tennessee or the SEC West and a spot in the championship game last year against LSU. Okay, they played close, but they lost. They've lost their last three. And, you know, I do think it it is reasonable to point out that big games um, are defined differently at Alabama because of the success they've had. And there is an element to their games, is it's, which may change if they lose to Texas. But right now, there's a, it's only a really big game if they lose. You know, I mean, like, had they beaten Tennessee, had the uh, had the interception late stood and they had won that game. Well, that would have been a great game, but it would not have been a big game necessarily for uh, for Alabama. But when they lost, it was a big game. LSU, same thing, because how many times uh, has it been mentioned in the offseason for LSU? Well, they beat Alabama. Well, Alabama didn't go to the playoff last year. So the standard is different for what constitutes a big game for them. But it is also reasonable to point out they've lost their last three where even they could define it as a, you know, some on some level, a big game. But I but my Alabama roots compel me to point this out, Pete. Uh, The great Gene Stallings used to say, you know, before they would play, I don't know, Louisiana Tech or somebody. uh, Biebs would say, well, if you don't think this is a big game, you just try losing it and see what happens. (laughs) So so there's a point to be made with that, too. That's a great line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> things things go sideways pretty fast when you get that uh, when you step on the rake, as you like to say yeah. in the uh, in, in one of those uh, one of those early season uh, early season games. We'll, we'll talk more about that game this week, Reese. But I'm just kind of curious. Big home games of the Saban era. Um, as I go through them in my head, and this is a completely non scientific, off the cuff. Uh, I think of the Cam Newton game. Mm-hmm. I think of the Joe Burrow game. Um, I think of the nine six LSU game with less. Uh, what what am I missing here, and where does this one kind of fit in? Um, Probably biggest non conference, right? Has there been a monster non con there? Because they've gone neutral site on us. Alabama yeah, has. yeah, they went neutral site. It enhanced their recruiting efforts. I think to be visible in you know Dallas and Orlando and you know Atlanta and wherever Atlanta. else they've played yeah. over the years. I think in the Saban era. Probably, and this was more because it was Joe Paterno and, you know, Penn State came in early on. There haven't been a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And this sort of speaks Mm -hmm. to what I was talking about earlier, that those that you rattled off, I think, kind of give this perception. They've been, uh, I don't want to say vulnerable because they've won a boatload of six national championships, but they've lost some home games. They lost the the Texas A&M game, you know, to Johnny Menzel. Went on to win the national championship, but there have been some some home losses that have really, really stung, uh, you know, over the years. And this would be on that list. I don't know that this would quite live up to the to the Cam Newton game, or probably even the nine six LSU game, which they were able to avenge. Yeah, that but was it stung, huge. It stung in the moment, yeah, for sure for them. So. Burrow was Burrow was a huge game. I mean, Trump was there. Like it was that thing was a, that thing was just a you know colossal game. Yeah, I remember. I remember uh, working to beat the crowd out because it looked like the game was over, and then uh, 
Tua and Devontae Smith roasted Stingley for the 17th time or something and uh, went like 85. And so they had a chance, you know, one more stop or onside kick or something, and they couldn't get it. So, yeah, that was uh, – if the atmosphere there Saturday night even approaches that, um, I'll I'll be impressed because Ooh. that was uh, – I mean, that buildup and intensity Electric. was was yeah. amazing and a great performance by LSU. They came out and – you know, built a lead and was able to hang on to it. I had a wise college football sage tell me that this could be the hardest ticket in America until the Super Bowl. Yeah, and then McAfee said on our call that right now, I guess, in some of the secondary markets that Colorado, Nebraska was selling for more. I know you have you have fewer tickets there in that venue than you would there, but um, yeah. Yeah, that's- yes. No, I I had not. I haven't looked at the secondary stuff. It doesn't surprise me, right? Like yeah. Dion is scorching at a at a different uh, at a different level. But I think the celebrities that are going to roll into Tuscaloosa. I just think it's going to be it's going to just going to be a preposterous scene. Can't wait. No, no question, no question about it. The Weekend Review is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice-cold Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. So we await the final game of Week 1 as we speak here on uh, Labor Day now afternoon. We are joined by the great Ryan McGee, who has divided allegiances in some of these SEC-ACC things, having hailed from ACC country yet gone to an SEC school. So he can give us some good perspective on that. But before that, Pete, both you and I were really, really impressed. I absolutely loved the essay that you wrote and tracked for College Game Day on Saturday, sort of encapsulating the North Carolina-South Carolina feud slash rivalry. Well, I appreciate that, I, I, and I think I texted this to you, Reese, because you were kind enough to send me a text Friday night. I, I've been writing that essay my whole life. I, 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 you know, I'm, we're all we're all in the same age group, but I have, with the exception of the couple of years I spent in Connecticut and the four years I spent in Knoxville, I have lived no more than about a half hour above or below the North Carolina South Carolina border. And so, you know, I, my first years of high school were in North Carolina. I graduated high school in South Carolina, you know, so it's, I've lived in Charlotte, you know, where you guys just were for the last you know quarter century. And so, yeah, I've been living that deal my whole life. And I have, I learned very quickly because I grew up in what we called, and this doesn't affect how I affect, uh, cover, how I cover college football. Now I grew up in what we call an ABC house, anybody but Carolina. My dad went to East Carolina. My brother <laughs> went to Wake. You know, I grew up in North Carolina state fan, went to Tennessee, but I learned very quickly. If you wanted to anger the people, you know, in uh, in Chapel Hill, go get a University of South Carolina sweatshirt, but get one of the ones just as Carolina on it. And uh, <laughs> I used to I used to wear those just just to make my friends mad. <laughs> and so and so now your daughter has one of those, right? Yeah. Oh no. Well, my daughter, my daughter who's a freshman in South Carolina, that was her first game uh, uh, Saturday night. I was with her. It didn't go the way she she experienced the, the she got the full South Carolina Gamecocks football experience on Saturday night. The energy was amazing. You know, uh, Spencer Rattler, I thought, played great, uh, and they lost a game that they, they probably should have won. <laughs> and so well, I said, welcome to the University of South Carolina. But, yeah, my daughter immediately went to – she went to high school here in Charlotte. All of her friends went to Chapel Hill. She immediately went to the bookstore in Columbia when she signed the dotted line and got all stuff that just said Carolina on it in garnet and black. So, yeah, I raised her right. 
Let me ask you this, Ryan. I saw on social media you took in the uh, you took in the game from the stands uh, yeah. on Saturday. Is that is that right? What was it? What was it like there? What was the experience? What do you think the fan split was? Any any good color scene? Yeah, you know, it was interesting because it was all very mixed. You know, it, it was obviously was on the on the press box side of the stadium was primarily South Carolina, the southern half of the stadium, by the way, and then <laughs> on the northern half of the stadium was primarily North Carolina fans. Very typical that most of the South Carolina fans were in their seats an hour before kickoff. Most of the North Carolina fans showed up as kickoff was happening, which is <laughs> which is how both those fan bases always roll. But, it, but even on my row, it was about half and half. In fact, my daughter had her best friend with her, you know, who's from Chapel Hill. But the best part was I was texting Stanford Steve, who was literally – I was on about row seven. He was right in front of me. And he's like, what are you doing in the stands? And I said, it's my daughter's first game as a college student. So yeah, it was great. I tell you this though, um, we get spoiled in the press box, man. Nobody stands in my way. Uh, nobody whistles in my ear. I felt like <laughs> I, I, I felt very bougie while I was sitting out there and, and, uh, and complaining cause I couldn't see the game. <laughs> How did Drake may look in person? He looked great. And, and he's, he just composed. I mean, that, that's the thing is, and, and that's the MO on his family. You know, when my dad, was an ACC official and was first breaking into the ACC back in the eighties. His father, Drake's father, Mark was the quarterback in North Carolina and he played very much the same way. It was a very different style of football, but it was very controlled. It's what we saw from his brother in basketball. You know, it's, it's a, it is a smart, confident, you know, ability to play football. And then the flip side of that is Spencer Rattler, who I thought played very well, but was running for his life all night. You know, Drake may had some time to think about what he was going to do, as opposed to Spencer Rattler, but but May's just never, he's just he maintains an even strain, man. That that's why he's really really good. He, he, he I think he and Mac Brown, the reason they get along so well is they're kind of on that same page, you know. And, and so that's uh, to me, um, that's why they get along so well. What were your biggest takeaways here? We're going to get to dumb ways to lose at the end of this podcast. Any particular gaffes yeah. or great moments? Is it that the ACC sort of landed a couple of a uh, couple of shots to the SEC? What's what are the biggest takeaways you had from Week One? Yeah, well, I mean, look, the game I saw. That, so I started the day at Tennessee, Virginia, and, and got wow. got a little bit of that game. We we did Marty McGee and SEC yep. Nation from Nashville. So I started the game on the sideline in Nashville, and and that was a very. I mean. It, Virginia, Tennessee let Virginia hang around for a little bit in the first half, but they were clearly better. Uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, I felt like was a push talent-wise, but South Carolina figured out, A, you have to catch footballs, and B, your quarterback has to have time to figure out where he's going to throw it. And and so um, I just thought I was really taking – Sunday night blew me away. Like I I, I did not see that coming from Florida State. I've not bought into them. Um, You know, I I feel like – they're very talented, but until they show me something, and LSU obviously showed us something last year. So the way that game went completely blew me away. But yeah, ACC had a pretty good seventy-two hours, right? I mean they they staved off. You know, they've survived as a conference. I saw Jim Phillips on the sideline uh, in Nashville, and we chatted about it very briefly. But it it was, I mean, it was a heck of a seventy-two hours because not only do you survive as a conference and you add schools, but you win the games. I, I remember guys going to. ACC Media Days at Pinehurst. So, I mean, this was years ago. And John Swafford, this was all the questions from the great Calton Tudor of the Raleigh News Observer, you know, was sparring with with, uh, with Swafford. And it was all about how the Big East was about to raid the ACC and burn the ACC to the ground. 
And what Swafford said that day was, is always hung with me. He said, if we win our games on Labor Day weekend and we win our bowl games, you know, at the end of December, beginning of January, this perception goes away. And it's, it's stunning, right? I mean, a week ago, the ACC's barely hanging on and now they've added schools and they won their cross conference games and, you know, everybody in Greensboro slash Charlotte is very happy. But that, that sounds good, except it doesn't always work because the Pac 12's undefeated right. and they've been burned to the ground. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, somebody <laughs> tweeted at me a, a brilliant point. Said that the Pac 12 is now like the two pack. They called him Tupac. Yeah. I was like, that's it. Yeah. So, yeah, the good news is that all the Pac, we, we said this forever about the Pac 12. If they would just take care of their business week one, two, and three, and they never did. And now the conference has literally been burned to the ground. They ran the table. It's the most Pac-12 thing that's ever happened. Well, I really think that like this start is a reminder of USC had a string of dithering athletic directors and then Clay Helton, who's a wonderful man, but wasn't the right guy for the job there. They basically took a nap for a decade. Administratively, they took a nap for a generation. But like on the field, they took a nap for a decade. And does this happen? Does the Pac-12 value decrease so much that they have to flee if they are the USC we remembered from the previous decade. And the same thing for, you know, look, Miami's been in a generation, they've taken a generation off, right? They've played in less ACC title games than BC. If Miami's the Miami that when Swafford went and poached them, I don't think the ACC, SEC at least becomes a debate, one, one, two, three, and then Florida State obviously took a decade off from being nationally relevant, and they're just now reasserting themselves. So, if some of these places that should be wired to win and have won didn't for various reasons completely tank, I don't know if we have the same speed of realignment that we have. Yeah, you no, guys agree with that? Yeah, I agree. And I think there, guys, I, I think there's always been a, a prisoner of the moment thing. And, and Reese, I've always preached this about Tennessee, Alabama. You know, when they were talking about scheduling and talking about <laughs> this and that and so and so, and everybody's like, ah, does the Tennessee, Alabama game really matter anymore? Of course it does. I mean, yes, you know, it just because. You know, and you know, like I know, that is a, that series has been a series of streaks. One team wins for eight years. It just so happens that Alabama had the longest winning streak in the history of the series. But I think we saw immediately last October, yes, the game still matters. And so uh, to, to your point, Pete, what I worry, have always worried about with realignment is being a prisoner of the moment and not appreciating a program for what it is. You know, if realignment was happening and Washington State had Ryan Leaf, right, or, or if Mike Leach is Stanford had Andrew Luck. Exactly. And, and so I worry a lot of times about being prisoner of the moment in these things. And I hope that, that, that the leaders are smarter than that. But I don't, anecdotal evidence tells me that perhaps they are not. <laughs> All of these rivalries, too. You know, I don't want to go off on this tangent. Anybody can play if they want to. And that's the one thing I think that's great about yep. Washington, Washington State, Oregon, Oregon State. The plans are to continue to play Oklahoma. Oklahoma State has been a little more petulant in their you know approach about continuing their series, sort of in the Texas, Texas A&M vein. But it's going to wind back and, and play, you know, play against each other. So the prisoner of the moment thing is – is a great point as it pertains to realignment. It also is a great point as it pertains to week one, because we have decided, I'm speaking collectively here, social media fan bases is sort of natural. We've decided that that Colorado is fixed. We've decided yep. that uh, at least there's a fraction of the Georgia fan base and the fraction of the Ohio State fan base who's convinced that they won't be able to score, you know, against against really good teams. <laughs> Uh, LSU 
is that, you know, maybe, maybe Brian Kelly is a Yankee after all. You know what I mean? So there, there are a lot of overreactions. Yeah. There are a lot of overreactions going on right now. The one that the one that I have is one I brought up to Pete earlier on the podcast, though, and it's it's one I worry about. This is going to make me seem like the ultimate wishy-washy flip-flopper. So hear me out. When TCU hired Sonny Dykes, I was underwhelmed. Didn't think I was like, yeah, no, I don't get that. Last year, by the end, I was like, hey, I was wrong about that. You know, flat must have been flat wrong. What an unbelievable job. But then after that, Saturday and reeling, the prisoner of the moment in me goes, well, what if my instinct was right and it was underwhelming and you missed this opportunity because TCU had a real chance to be the cornerstone program of the Big 12. Now, Colorado uh, and we talked about this in yeah. the offseason, that the move, this is, gives him a chance to be a cornerstone program. Utah is going to be one. You know, so when you look at the Alabama, Tennessee's, Georgia's, uh, LSU's, who sort of constitute that foundation of good teams, Florida State and Clemson, uh, you know, and hopefully someday Miami, constitute that foundation of good teams that you can build around. That's what the new Big 12 is going to look for establish those rivalries and maybe it's going to be you know here's the opportunity for Colorado and Utah to be in a position in a conference in a major conference that they've never been in so the overreaction would be that TCU is not going to be that anymore because maybe I was right the first time about Sonny I hope not by the way I hope they you know rebound it and continue to do well and that the overreaction is that Colorado's got it all figured out and they're about to become a powerhouse which they might yeah but we we've got one game of, of data so far so no, no, we'll see. Yeah, no, it's um. Well, and what I kept hearing from Big Twelve fans were like, "Well, why? Do I, why would I care about Colorado? Right? Well, TCU cares about them now. That rivalry, <laughs> that rivalry is firmly established, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's there's going to be some heat there, you know, at least in the short term. And so, yeah, it's my favorite thing about Week One is the fact that, I mean, you know, I'll give you even Week Zero when UMass won. We joked about last week, but you know, preseason number one in the bottom ten. All the UMass fans, you know, uh, our, our boy, our boy, you know, Randy Angolia down in Florida is constantly, well, we're going to win nine games now. No, you're not. I mean, you're not. But, but, <laughs> but, 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 but enjoy, enjoy week zero, right? And, uh, and turn the battleship around the bathtub, however you can do it. But yeah, that's why, that's why week one, listen, I was leaving the stadium on Saturday night in Charlotte and, uh, the South Carolina fans have already decided that, uh, the season's over. And, you know, it's, they're going back to, to where they were because, you know, bless their hearts, there's a lot of PTSD down in Columbia. And then the, the, the North Carolina fans, and, I, again, anecdotal evidence and statistical evidence, I know that, you know, they've not won a conference you know, championship since I was a kid, like a little kid. And you know, they, think, and they all of a sudden yeah. think they're going to go – right, they're going to go to the playoff, right? No, they're not. And so it's – it's <laughs> I don't think. And so – but that's why week one's the greatest, right? It's, absolute, it's the absolute best. And you know what? You know what? You also overreact. Does North Carolina have Minnesota at home, and they yeah. app this week. Minnesota at home next week, yeah. and yeah. then at Pitt. Right? Yeah. That's a that's a September man. Yeah. If they get if they if they manage that gauntlet, they should be a top ten pre program. They should be a top ten team. No question. Here's the other overreaction. We have some coaches who are completely overreacting to the new clock rules. Now let the court stipulate that I've never been one who said, well, we've got to shorten these games. I like college football. If we want to play longer and play yeah. more, that's that's great. I'm all for that. But, you know, this thing that 
all of a sudden the game is being wrecked. Well, I tell you what, they're a lot shorter than they were before by one minute on average. Through, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. there. It's not a, a not a big enough sample size. I'll admit that. Average time of game through Saturday, three hours and twenty six minutes. Last year, the average time three hours and twenty seven minutes. Plays per game. You say, oh no, no, we don't care about the league. We've cut out. We've lost all these plays. You know how many plays you've lost? Less than two so far. Less yeah. than two. So I said that to say. I understand and empathize with Chip Kelly wanting to get the offense going. This, There's no data so far to support the idea that this is the reason that they couldn't get it going, at least not so far. Now, we'll find out more when we get a few more weeks in the books and find out whether it really does impact and whether we have some particular games, both short and long, number of plays with a lot of plays and few plays that have skewed the numbers. But to... You know, that's sort of the point. You can't decide that yeah. right now. You don't know. I mean, and everybody will adjust and figure out how to run their plays as best they want to. But Pete, Pete's upset about this. He thinks that we've ruined the game by by changing the clock rules. I don't like the rhythm of the end of games, right? Like what separates college and makes it yep. better than the NFL yep. is that there is more opportunity for chaos at the end of games. And we can't root for teams, but we can sure root for chaos. And I root for it every week. I want that improbable comeback. I want that extra possession. I want that clock to drag out just a little bit to, to, to get hope. I want that guy reaching for the first down at midfield because he knows it's going to stop the clock. And then they, you know, they can make a, uh, a substitution or whatever to, to, to keep the drive going. I just feel like that is one of the, we should keep differences between college football and the NFL. I, I don't believe in the homogenization of it. That's what makes the sport unique. So I am, I am against it. I am on Team Chip Kelly um, in the New Hampshire primary of this debate. <laughs> I want, I want the old rules back. You know what I wanted? What I wanted because you know the old rules are in effect in the last two minutes, as you know, the last two minutes of each half. No, I do know that. Yeah. But like, if you're down two scores, Billy Napier, quite frankly, bungled it in that Utah game. Yep. Yeah, he was, he was Wait, not yeah. playing with the pace. Right. You needed when you were down multiple scores against Utah. Well, that was, and I thought that was one of the – yeah, go ahead. No, go no, ahead. no. I was just going to interject under my breath and say well, that was the least of their problems, but please continue. Yes, but I do think like, <laughs> but I do think that was one of the places where it stood out as like, yeah. okay, you're down two scores here, and the clock's going to go from seven minutes to, to four minutes a lot faster than it would have before if you, could, uh, if you could move the ball. Now, they also struggled moving the ball, so I'm not going to overlook that, but I just – I want opportunity. Like that's what those rules always meant to me was that you could probably come back from 13 down with six minutes to go. Um, and I do think like everything being sandwiched together, even though the, the data isn't quite there, shows that there's a little less opportunity. It also shows people are going to lean into the clock rules, shorten the game with leads and stuff. So it, I felt like it had a fairly big impact on the opening weekend. Officials will always tell you about when, you know, every other year there are new rules introduced, mm -hmm. you know, and, and officials will tell you all the time, September is the learning curve. And whenever's there, there we're, we're in a new rule season, you know, a new rule year, it takes about a month. And that includes the coaches, not the officials. They got to be ready, but, but, but everyone, the players, everyone has to get used to it. But Pete, to your point, my biggest concern, and people ask me about realignment and they ask me about scheduling and they ask me about expanded playoff and they ask me about the clock rule. And, and my answer is always the same, which is my single biggest concern about all of this 
is that I want Saturday football to look like Saturday football, and I want Sunday football to look like Sunday football. I don't watch Sunday football. I respect the NFL. I follow the players that I covered in college. I root for the Carolina Panthers because I've lived in Charlotte, you know, half of my life. But but the reality is is that I loved college football growing up because it was different. And when we, big steps are taken to try and make it all look the same, it drives me crazy. That's my biggest concern about college football going forward is in 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years, will it still look like college football as opposed to will it just look like, you know, the AAA affiliate of the NFL on Saturdays? And that that that, that is my single biggest old man get off my lawn concern about where the game is going. And to me, the clock rules that's example. Listen, you guys were at the Charlotte Knights ballpark, right? I'm wearing a Charlotte Knights mm-hmm. hat right here, the AAA affiliate of the White Sox. I'm a season ticket holder. It's right next door to Bank of America Stadium where the, where the game was on Saturday night. You, y'all did game day right next door. That was a – Pat McAfee and Kirk took batting practice That was it, on Friday, right. But, but that was that, – that ballpark two years ago was one of the test ballparks. Three years ago was one of the test ballparks for the, for the pitch clock. I loved it. I got no problem with it. Baseball games do need to be shortened. That pace needs to be picked. I don't believe that's the case in college football. But, you know, I, I just – again, I, my biggest concern going forward is – you know, buys in the playoff, um, you know, all this. I just – I don't want Saturday to look like NFL, you know, you know, point two. I just don't want that to happen. Well, there, there's too much of it that's moving there. I didn't have a problem with the clock rules. Pete, you brought up an interesting thing on text about how did we get here, and, and I think it's twofold what the impetus was, it seems to me, from talking to a lot of people. One was – actual length of game and let's be honest about it it was a business model thing tv would like for the games to fit in more manageable windows and avoid the four plus hour games which brings up chip's point which is a valid one he made reference to the commercials and in the in the stadium then the long breaks uh really really impact the flow of the game for the fans if you're just watching that so i i don't think the rules addressed some of those concerns um in that in that way but the other one um i don't know that there's been any empirical data or any studies done definitively but they always bring up player safety which everyone who's around the sport um is in favor of anything to make the game safer to make it better for the players we're all for and they say well you know and with fatigue, of course, you're more likely to uh, to succumb to some type of fatigue-related injury or not protecting yourself as you would on play 95 uh, as opposed to play 67. That's That sort of stands to reason, people would think. Yet, and, and I realize he's an outlier, yet Travis Hunter played 119 snaps on Saturday, and he looked as if he could play 119 more. These are, <laughs> these are pretty... Uh, Pretty elite athletes, and I I haven't seen it if it exists. The study that says that players are more at risk after play number X. Um, uh, fatigue makes cowards of us all, and all of that. And you know, if guys are standing up and not in proper position, of course they're going to be more vulnerable. I think that I think those two things were the driving impetus. I don't know if um, if there's compelling evidence to suggest that it's. Uh, that it's meaningful enough to have made the changes. But I figure everybody will adapt, sort of like when, you know, when Chip in Oregon 
ran the same play over and over again before anybody could get lined up. Well, then sooner or later, people figured out how to get lined up. And and they'll right. I think they'll figure this out, too, in terms of the clock rules. Maybe it'll yeah. impact the way, way teams use timeouts when they're down and trying to get that. Well, oh, I think it would have to. Well, you know? that, that's one of the adjustments you're talking yeah. about, Ryan, that, that could happen. You, should, you could see a team you know, down two scores, maybe theoretically taking a timeout in the fours instead of saving them later because they want to get it back now. You know, you get a you get a third and a third and 13 and here's your chance to get off the field. Bam. You know, let's let's save that 40 seconds or 30 seconds or whatever it is. Yeah, I, I, you guys probably didn't watch the end of BC Northern Illinois, but I did uh, in part because YouTube TV didn't work on my flight uh, because it's like Fox local. So I could only get cable channels and that was the best cable game available. So anyway, um, <laughs> Jeff Halfley took all three of his timeouts before the um, they were down a touchdown. They came back uh, to tie the game, put in overtime. It actually was a well-executed strategy. And I'd actually be curious and will ask if the new clock rules impacted that. They took all three um, before the three-minute mark, which you don't see very mm-hmm. often. Yep, and on defense to then set themselves up on offense, probably because they knew they, you know, those were the built-in timeouts that they had left. There were a lot more discussions about, and you always see this week one, week two, week three. But it was interesting being in the stands, being right behind the bench. Um, you know, Molly McGrath was down there working like crazy, and I just was sitting there, you know, taking notes. But 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 it was but watching the the coaching staff discuss logistics. And I think these were the things that they were talking about. You know, there were long during the television timeout, there were discussions and guys were pointing to the scoreboard and talking and they're talking about how many timeouts they have and what are we going to do? And so there's a, there's going to be a somewhat of a timeout play chart, I think, you know, going in, you know, what are your scenarios as opposed to just, you know, coach pulling Roy Williams and just hanging on to all the timeouts to take them, you know, to the great beyond with them. <laughs> right. Well, you, you pick on, you pick on Roy Williams, but you know, John Wooden and Digger Phelps still talks about this yep. was stubbornly refused to call a timeout as Notre Dame ending that 88 game winning streak in 1974. Uh, they had an 11 point lead late. Wooden would not take the timeout, believe the players should figure it out. And ultimately Digger's team won. Uh, greatest moment of his life, uh, probably because every year on January nineteenth, I get the call. Fifty year anniversary is coming up next year. I've been reminded of that a couple of times. <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, timeouts and the use of them uh, a source of a source of conflict uh, there, which brings us to our wrapping wrapping point. Dumb loses more than smart wins. Everybody knows for the last couple of years on this podcast, whenever there's been a major job opening, I've said go hire Matt Rule. I love Matt Rule. I think Matt Rule is a terrific football coach. But he had a number of things work against him that makes Nebraska home of the cinnamon roll and chili combination. The winner of or the loser of this week's <laughs> dumb loses more than smart wins. One thing you'll overlook because you think I'm just going to talk about giving up fourth and 10, giving up a couple of turnovers late. End of the first half. They're down, I think, on the one-yard line. They've got one timeout left. I think they're looking at – I think this was going to be third down. So they're trying to save the timeout for um, for the kicking unit, which was understandable. There was 20-some-odd seconds left, and I'm going, timeout, Matt, timeout, Matt, timeout, Matt. And instead, you know, they're scrambling. They get up there, false start, back up, throw an interception in the end zone, and they get zero 
which turned out to be three pretty big points when they ended up losing on a walk-off field goal. You have that. You have a fumble when you're controlling the game and running for the win. And then you have, after nearly giving up a third and 10 on on the most athletic catch, this side of Travis Hunter that didn't count uh, by Daniel Jackson. And then he followed it with almost an equal catch that did count for the touchdown. And Minnesota gets the win, and it proved it was positively Frostian the the way the way they lost. It was as if the old regime hadn't ended yet. And you know, maybe maybe that's the one. Maybe maybe that was the final uh, piece of penance that the Nebraska fans have to pay is being the dumb loses more than smart wins. It probably felt as if they'd had bits of broken chair just slammed across their back. And lost the five dollars too. Is Sarah okay? Sarah, are you are you okay? Are you like is smoke coming out of your ears? Sarah Abbott, our producer, Nebraska native. You know, still alive, but I'm barely breathing. I was at yeah. a Disney World during that game, so I was at the happiest place on earth while my parents were suffering and in a great deal of pain watching that game. How's your grandmother? I know she's a reoccurring character on our show. Uh, her pain has been well chronicled. How's Granny, Granny doing? was very sad. When I came home, she just looked so defeated. Mm. She went through it. My dad said, quote, mm. I just wasted three and a half hours of my life. And my mom took down the Husker flag as soon as possible. So oh. tough day. Oh, that's day. huge. But Whoa. you know what? We're no, that's huge. So it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, ninety-one thousand. Ninety-three or ninety-one thousand and three. Ninety-two thousand. Yep. There you Sarah, go. didn't I didn't you tell me extra three? Didn't you tell me too that your dad was not particularly positive? Did Did you walk in? Did you see him like right before the end of the game? Yeah. So we walked in from Disney World with two minutes left so we got to see the beautiful field goal and my dad just said great you're just in time to watch us lose so it was was a really really great day (laughs) that's terrible Uh, i'm sorry for that maybe maybe no more uh, unlikely circumstances will befall big red from this point forward hopefully that was that was the end of the run you know hopefully I was stand. I, so you talk about Disney World. I was standing in line for Rise of the Resistance over the summer, and uh, I, and a guy said, "Hey, are you McGee?" I go, "Yeah, from ESPN." Yeah, and he said, "You went to Tennessee?" I said, "Yeah." Because man, they had a great year last year. I said they did, and he said, "And M- Michigan made the playoff." I said, "Yeah," and he said, "You think Florida State? They're going to be pretty good, right?" I go, "Yeah." I said, "They should be like at least preseason top 10. He goes, "We're the only team from the '90s that hadn't gotten it back yet." And I go, are you from Nebraska? He said, yes. And he just walked off. So that, that sounds like a walk. We need off. like a, a running. Go ahead, Pete. We need a running bit of like McGee's random interactions with, yeah. with fans. Cause it's usually like obscure. It's it. not like you just run into Notre Dame fans or Bama fans. Yeah. It's like UMass fans. Yeah. And you stomped <laughs> off and they're all angry. They're all, they're all, you go right into the mood. souls of college yeah. football. They're all in a bad mood. Yeah. You know, look, Ryan is, uh, I look miserable like they do, I guess. Ryan is as honest as the day is long, but he's also an entertainer. And I'm going to tell you, 
I gotta wonder if these stories are true sometimes, man, or if this is just a it's yeah. just just your writer's soul coming out with these characters that you uh have we are are we embellishing at all or are these hard Ryan McGee reporting facts here? No, I, I figured out a long time ago. I tried to Pete, you know, we all did we all made stuff up earlier in our careers and we all got caught on it. So I figured out, you know what, we probably should just uh, you know, maybe 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 I shouldn't make up quotes anymore. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make up any quotes. You know what I'm talking about. Pete, yeah. Pete's like, no, no. Pete's like, don't drag me down into this. I'm the authority. No, no, no. <laughs> no it's, it's true. I, I, it's true. And I tell you, you'll get checked on it if it's not. Because um, I guarantee you that guy right now will probably be listening to this show. And he's going to be driving the truck, probably probably driving the combine, you know, plowing the corn or whatever. And he's going to go, that's true. I did say that. And he walked off. Like, I'm like, dude, you've been in line for Rise Resistance for like 30 minutes. And he just left. <laughs> no, you can't leave the line. That's the part I actually don't believe. You need a drink. Yeah. My man went <laughs> yeah. and got some blue milk. Oh. <laughs> so we, of course, don't drink blue milk, right? We got to do, uh, do that ride before it opened, the year that we did um, a game day at Disney World, which was phenomenal. And so they were about to open it that weekend. So they took us over. Phenomenal setup. Great ride. Sounds like a great place to uh, for us to walk off to here. I've never been more jealous. All right. We'll walk it off. Guys, that was great. A lot of fun. Week one, almost in the books. If you're listening before Clemson and Duke play later tonight, thanks for listening to the College Game Day podcast. Continue to download this wherever you like to get your podcast.